Xtalks connects professionals in the life science, medical device, and food industries with useful content like webinars, job openings, articles, and virtual meetings to help you succeed in your career. This food industry-focused podcast brings together some of our editorial staff to share insights into the latest B2B industry news to help keep you up to date. This week on the show, we are discussing why some food products are wrapped in wax and food clinical trials, what they are and the purpose they serve. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the X Talks Food Podcast. I'm Sydney Perlmutter, Senior Food Industry Journalist and Webinar Moderator at xtalks.com, and this week I'm joined by Aisha Rashid and Vera Kovacevich. Thanks for coming today. So I'm going to start us off with a story about something I'm sure many of you have not heard of before, and I certainly hadn't heard of until a few weeks ago when I started looking into them, but they are food clinical trials. So I'm going to talk a little bit about what they are and what purpose they serve. So we know clinical trials, we talk about them on, you know, the life science side, but we don't really talk about them in food that much. But, you know, your typical clinical trials are designed by drug and medical device manufacturing companies to explore specific products, uh, sorry, to explore specific product features impacting human health. So they tend to be organized by companies themselves, but many government organizations regulate clinical trials and claims about trial findings globally, including the FDA and the FTC, which is the Federal Trade Commission. While food and beverage consumption often play just as large of a role in regulating human health as drugs and medical devices, food clinical trials are lacking. So we know that clinical trials are the primary way that researchers find out if a new drug or medical device is safe and effective in humans, but why don't food and beverage products that make specific health claims go through the same process? So here's everything that you need to know about the burgeoning uh, food clinical trial space, including what they are and what purpose they serve. So food clinical trials are often designed to evaluate specific marketing claims that need specific scientific substanti- substantiation. So they tend to be more pragmatic and exploratory since they document human experiences with specific foods in the context of the human diet. So they're generally conducted to evaluate the effect of food and beverage products on the prevention or mitigation of symptoms rather than the treatment or cure of a condition like a typical scientific clinical trial might do. Food clinical trials typically enroll healthy individuals as opposed to patients with a specific disease type potentially needing um, research treatment. The food and beverage products involved in the trials are complex mixtures of ingredients designed to be appetizing um, and which may have the general health effect under investigation. So they often use measures involving the senses, including food taste, texture, and feelings of satiety and bloating. But like uh, drug and medical device clinical trials, food clinical trials should be conducted using the FDA's good clinical practices with appropriate human subject protections. And all food and beverage products used in human testing should also be produced under good manufacturing practices. Food, Food clinical trials must also clearly define the study objectives, inclusion and exclusion criteria, study measurements, and statistical analyses. So they obviously have a lot in common with, um, you know, typical clinical trials, but unlike drug and medical device clinical trials, food clinical trials do not typically require a safety review by the FDA before the trial can commence. And additionally, they generally have only one phase, take several weeks to months 
to, to months to complete uh, are conducted at a single study site and have minimal risk of, of averse events. So they are much less risky. Um, and like I said, they don't need to be reviewed by the FDA before, uh, which makes sense in the context of food. Now, in terms of what purpose they serve, the demand for food and beverage products with proven health effects, like functional foods, um, such as improved intestinal or muscle health, is increasing. So food clinical trials exist in order to provide insight on a food or beverage product's impact on human health, add to the evidence of a health benefit, and or provide measurable outcomes that meet regulatory requirements. So companies hoping to market a food health claim on a product's label must provide supporting data from high-quality, non-biased human clinical studies. And we've seen um, food clinical trials help substantiate a variety of claims like functional claims, that it contributes to regular bowel movements, promotes gut health, nutrient claims, reduces spikes in blood sugar, therapeutic claims, and probiotic or prebiotic claims. So effective trials often start with the desired claim in mind and are built around that claim as the rationale for the study. And it's crucial to ensure that the claim is relevant for human health and the meaning of the claim has been fully supported by the food clinical trial data. And they must also ensure that the quantity of food consumption is possible as part of a balanced diet in the target population for the claim. So obviously you're not just going to have subjects eat or drink um, just that product um, because that just wouldn't be um, fair to evaluate. So most importantly, linking the claimed effect to the consumption of the food or beverage product is essential in food clinical trials. But clearly defining effects and outcomes can present some challenges, especially when defining subjective, subjective measures like cognition, pain, or hunger, as opposed to objective measures like hemoglobin levels or weight. So while there are many factors and variables to consider, when they are done properly, food clinical trials can produce valuable outcomes for food and beverage companies. Especially being able to scientifically substantiate health claims can increase trust among consumers as well as market value. So this is obviously a very new topic. Topic. There's not much written about it, um, but in my research, I have seen that you know large companies like Nestle have um, are, are going through or have taken part in um, these food clinical trials. Um, but since I'm talking to um, some people on our science side, I wanted to just get your you know thoughts on food clinical trials. Do you think they are you know? Do you think they should exist? Um, do you think it's important when a food company makes a claim that it is scientifically substantiated? Um, and how do you, you know, I, I mentioned a, some of the ways that they differ from clinical trials, but um, would you take a food clinical trial as seriously, let's say, as like a science clinical trial? Great questions. And yes, to your first question, um, I think you were saying, uh, Sydney, about um, should they be conducted to, um, to substantiate scientific or health claims rather um, that some foods come with? And yes, absolutely. I think this is what we've been looking for for the longest time. You know, we've talked about it on this podcast and, you know, I've been pretty vocal and very <laughs> a strong skeptic of, you know, a lot of health claims that are made for, you know, um, around different foods and so I think this is amazing. And I had no idea, like you were also saying that, like, as I guess a lot of people also probably had no idea that 
food clinical trials even exist. Um, like, what's their history? Do you do you know um, how long they've been around? Is this a newer concept, or have they just, or have they been around for a while and they they're just you know coming to light now more so? Like, have they been hidden under the radar, and why um, you know haven't they you know been um, why why are they not more common and and you know i think we're gonna get there soon but it's just it just boggles my mind that you know a lot of uh food company companies get away with making all of these you know outrageous health claims in many cases and there's no scientific evidence to back it like it's just because we are dealing with uh, you know let food be thy medicine is something i like to always say <laughs> and so but you know in a lot of cases like or food, you know, has an impact on human health, of course, um, we all know this, but, and so we need to better study it before making health claims. So I'm very happy to hear about these food clinical trials and that, you know, health agencies um, or food and drug agencies, like the FDA is an obvious one, you know, is obviously going to be regulating and looking at clinical trial data from these food clinical trials. Um, and I'm so happy to learn more about this um, through your piece and down this podcast. Yeah, great point in terms of like the history of them. In in my research, I was finding some studies that dated back to like the, you know, I think at the earliest sometime in the 2010s, like the early okay. 2010s. Um, I would imagine that they, like you were kind of saying, that they, they've just been kind of something that's been done under the radar. Um, just because I think just consumers perception of food is is um not necessarily as you know taken they don't take it as seriously as a um, drug as a yeah. drug and and we don't we don't eat um to cure ourselves of any ailments we just eating is is just part of you know the whole balanced just lifestyle yeah. in general it's more mm-hmm. of a preventative rather than like a cure um to any illnesses or anything like that um but just I, and I also think that since you know the FDA doesn't have to approve of a clinical of a food clinical trial before it starts, mm-hmm. it's it's really just um, thus far it's been the initiative of the companies themselves, um, and effective marketing can't be I'm just gonna say yeah <laughs> like understated. It is yeah. like up to this point, I think it has been the the way that food and beverage brands have been able to market their products um, as, you know, and making health claims um, just by fancy words and and words with broad and vague meanings like functional food. Mm-hmm. Um, so I hope that um, this practice is a lot more common in the future. Um, and hopefully now that we're discussing it on the podcast, it it will be not that we have that much influence, but I think I think you know, our sentiments about uh, broad health claims are, are not just shared between us. I think mm-hmm. a lot of other people also feel that way um, and have really started to question claims um, that they see, you know, on, on labels. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the food clinical trials that are, you know, sponsored by companies um, by in the food industry, those are probably more recent, right? Because they want to back up their claims. Um, but, you know, Probably a longer while back, I think it was mostly like dietary clinical trials being run by universities mainly, like 
for example, what is the best food to eat for people with diabetes, right? And this has probably been done a, a long, long time ago. Um, yeah, in the context of disease, Yeah, exactly. Right? Those yeah. clinical trials involving food were probably maybe even done before medicines, right? So um, because we, we, the first thing we think of is maybe, oh, how does diet influence something like uh, diabetes? But yeah, it's good that there's, yeah. I think in recent years, like Sydney said, like a lot more various um, reasons are going on behind food clinical trials, like, for example, backing up a food claim or like food allergies, um, etc. So yeah, those are probably more new. And it kind of converges a little bit with the like supplement space mm -hmm. as well. It's kind of that's like the sup supplements are kind of like an in-between um, drugs and food. Um, and those those have been taking place um, for a while as well, even though I think there's still some shady practices <laughs> that, that go on, you know, um, yeah. in terms of making health claims and, and things like that. So, um, you know, we're, we're putting food in our bodies. We're now just getting to the point where these claims are hopefully going to be scientifically substantiated. And just one other thing I wanted to point out is like, like I was saying, it's there's so much more risk averse um, than drug or medical device clinical trials. So I think food companies have been able to get away with making claims like this just purely based off of the fact that they're not going to harm you regardless. Mm, yeah. They 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 make functional claims, but it's very hard to, you know, they, they won't be called out for uh, mm -hmm. harming someone. Um, whereas I feel like drugs are much more, uh, you know, there's been so many class action lawsuits with with um, with drugs um, and you don't really see that much with food because it's relatively risk averse. But yeah, there are some really important distinctions between like food um, and drug clinical trials. Um, yeah, that I thought I should mention. Yeah, definitely, because I think with drugs, you're dealing with, again, like in the context of disease. And so you're dealing with potentially vulnerable populations who, mm -hmm. you know, are not healthy and um also drugs are formulated you know the dosage and all of those things like they have an intent to to treat and cure whereas right. yeah with things like functional foods and, and things like that they're like oh well this is good for you just in a general <laughs> sense and so it's to be taken just generally so i do understand mm -hmm. that sentiment and that sort of thought behind it but um you know, there is a potential, though, for misuse, right? Like if somebody sees that a certain drink is good for, let's say, gut health and they suffer from poor gut health, they, you know, there's a potential of not overdosing, but overdoing it, which could, you know, potentially have uh, detrimental effects. But again, it's not as, you're right, as, you know, pronounced as with, let's say, a, a drug which is designed to be targeted and potentially in you know, dosage wise, it could be, you know, in high amounts and, and things like that. So I, I do get that. Um, and you know what, health claims are not a new thing, right? We, it's a new thing in our modern world in terms of modern day marketing. But if you go back from ancient times, people were using like herbs and things in their environment, you know, concoctions, how this is good for, you know, that's what people were using to treat diseases in terms of their limited knowledge of medicine and, uh, biology and, and and science at the time so 
yeah, and some of those are home remedies. The, these things still exist, right? So um, I do understand the sentiment and, and, and all of that, but I'm glad though that like, I think it just makes it a lot more, there should be more accountability if you're, you know, stating things on a label because it's more formalized in that way. So it's great that we, that things like, that food clinical trials are out there um, that can um, provide better substantiation of some of those claims, hopefully. I don't know to what degree, but we'll see. Now, have you ever wondered why, um, you know, a classic cheese is wrapped in wax? <laughs> so I'm referring to Baby Bell. Um, so Baby Bell is a pretty iconic um, cheese. It's sold in little um, circular wheels um, and it's wrapped in this red wax that you peel off. And um, I've not had one in years, but in my childhood, I remember really enjoying them. So food and beverage companies often sell products with pretty unique packaging, but I would argue that none are more iconic than Baby Bell. So it actually also comes in a green wax for its vegan cheese, which I haven't seen yet. Oh. Uh, yeah, but I'm used to it in the iconic mm. red wax. So it kind of offers more than just cheese with this unparalleled and pretty fun unwrapping experience. So I'm going to answer that question of why it's wrapped in wax and also mention a few other food products that use wax for packaging. So as I mentioned, um, Baby Bell is known for its red wax packaging, um, but around it is a netted bag and each piece is encased in paraffin wax. So the wax that coats every wheel of cheese is used to protect it from airborne bacteria, mold growth, and drying while it ages. So this wax is soft and pliable, unlike pure paraffin wax, which becomes brittle and causes it to crack easily. Um, and in my research, Research, I was also wondering, you know, um, can you actually make a candle out of um, Baby Bell wax? And um, the overwhelming response was no, you cannot, or at least not an effective candle. So in addition to paraffin, the packaging also contains microcrystalline wax and coloring, which specifically contains no BPA, which is a chemical often found in plastic food packaging. And Baby Bell cheese wax is food safe and meets very strict regulatory standards and poses no health risk if accidentally ingested, according to the company. And it also helps the cheese last for well over a week when stored in the refrigerator. But this red coating isn't actually unique to Baby Bell cheese. Coating cheese using food grade wax is often a method used on other hard and semi-hard cheeses that only need a few months to age. So much like Baby Bell cheese, wax helps prevent unwanted mold growth and retains moisture while cheeses age. And semi-soft and soft cheeses form their own rinds, which eventually perform a similar function. So aside from Baby Bell cheese, uh, one of the most recognizable red wax cheeses is Gouda, which is a semi-hard Dutch cheese with a mild nutty flavor and smooth creamy texture. Cheddar often comes in red wax as well. And various other cheeses, including Parmesan and Brie, can be found wrapped in black, orange, and yellow waxes, but all cheese waxes are opaque in order to protect the cheese from ultraviolet light. So you're never going to find clear uh, wax. <clears throat> Well, rack, while wax wrapping might also um, be the most obvious on cheeses, other food products also make use of wax, but it's just harder to see. 
So wax can also be found on fruit snacks, Skittles, M&Ms, fruits and vegetables to keep them looking and tasting fresh. Wax is particularly useful for fruits like apples um, because it helps them retain moisture, enhances firmness, and slows down the natural degradation process. So one of the reasons that I personally like to, if I'm eating an apple, wash it with like really hot water in order to um, melt the wax. But even if you don't melt it, uh, it's still it's still safe to eat. So not only is paraffin wax used to make fruits, vegetables, and candy look shiny, but it also acts as a chemical preservative, making it both functional and appealing to the eye. So this type of wax can also give chocolate a shiny coating and will pre prevent it from melting at room temperature or help it stay solid uh, when held in someone's hand. In addition to paraffin wax, another wax called carnauba wax can also be used for food packaging, and it's made from the leaves of the carnauba palm, which grows in northeastern Brazil. Um, it also gives candy and fruit snacks their shiny appearance. So edible food coatings have actually been used since the 1100s when merchants in southern China used wax to preserve oranges. So whether it's baby bell cheese, fresh produce, or candy, wax is a safe and effective way to keep certain foods fresher for longer and give them a shiny and appealing coating. So um, is this something you knew about wax? Is it something you assumed, um, you know, was just found uh, for baby bell packaging? Did you know that wax was also used in other cheeses? Uh, it was something that when I was researching it, I kind of was like, oh, yeah, I've definitely seen that on cheeses before, but I didn't yeah. put two and two together. I mean, I have never heard of wax being on apples. Can you can you elaborate a little bit more? I'm kind of confused. Like, what does that look like? <laughs> yeah. Can you notice it? So it, it doesn't, no, you don't notice it. It's um, in the case of apples, I, I'm pretty sure it's, it's just sort of like a very thin, clear wax coating. And um, like I, like, like I said, it, it is safe to eat, but it's definitely advisable to wash your apples and sort of wipe them down first before you eat them. I didn't really, yeah, until you started mentioning that other cheeses also have like wax covers and stuff like that at like Gouda and all of that. I'm like, oh yeah, that's true. They do. So yeah, you don't really um, notice it. And I never realized that, you know, the red packaging on the baby bell was like wax and it was like, you know, made for the cheese. I thought it was just some random packaging. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it was a strategic, um, it was a strategic move. It actually like, and it, and it makes sense too. Um, and, and also the fact that they're opaque rather than clear um, to keep out like ultraviolet yeah. light, um, which is smart as well. And I guess red was chosen because it's very vibrant mm -hmm. um, and green as well for their, for their vegan cheeses. Um, but yeah, if you've ever, you know, um, I was thinking back to videos I've seen of, of like, cheese makers or whatever they're called um like yeah. cutting really big wheels of cheeses wheels, and and yeah. with gouda they're often like wrapped in in it's, red wax as well so baby bells are just like the little mini versions of that mm -hmm. um, um yeah how is this waxed from the baby bell like cheese how is it disposed of so that's a good question. Um, and I actually wrote a story a while back about um, Baby Bell. They partnered with this company called TerraCycle. Um, so they can actually be recycled. Um, and that's, that's a very good question because we often don't really 
get like purchase products um that we need to dispose of um you know wax but thanks to the program with TerraCycle, um consumers can recycle um baby bill uh packaging cool so it's not so the wax packaging it's not like biodegradable probably yeah i per se um sorry let me no i actually i don't remember um um, and then it also has like the the netted oh no that's out sorry mm-hmm. ignore so um there is a bit of effort it seems like in in terms of recycling um baby bell packaging though so um the what i wrote about and this was uh, around two years ago that i wrote this story um but the new recycled products will be made from used packaging once it has been collected cleaned melted and mm. remolded so um all components of bb bill's packaging including the cellophane mesh labels metal fastener and wax can be recycled thanks to the new program okay so it ju- it seems like you can recycle um you know all all parts of uh the packaging um, because they, they're now made with fully recyclable materials. Um, but this wasn't up until two years ago. So before that, it could have been a different story. Um, but I'm not seeing anything about it being biodegradable. Wax, because it repels water, right? It's probably harder to degrade. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. makes sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's hydrophobic, yeah. right? It's, yeah. But anyways, Aisha, have you tried this uh, baby bell cheese? I think, yeah, I have, but I don't know, for some reason, I can't remember it too much. Like, probably as a kid or some time back. I, now I want to go back and retry it. It's just something I didn't catch on with me. So I just, like, tried it, but I can't remember it. So now it, I'm like, I need to go back. <laughs> it It is a cheese that I think is kind of universally loved by all those that try it because it, it's mild, but it's got yeah. an excellent sort of creamy, but also on the harder side, um, consistency. Yeah. Um, it's just, re- it's a really, like, you know, uh, easy cheese to get into. Um, the, and I... I I feel like they don't make it in like, blo- like blocks like regular cheese. Um, yeah, right. Uh, like the, yeah, your um, whatever those called. It's like the not your cheese wheel or something. Br- like bricks. Of yeah, che- the, the the cheese making, like the proper cheese making. You know, people. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, they have a name. I just can't. Gourmet. Like, is it gourmet? No, it's not gourmet cheese. Um, what is it? Like the. Like you have like your generic commercial cheeses, like the, the the bright orange cheddar cheese slices in the normal section, and then oh, you like have artisanal. like artisanal artisan yes artisan cheeses artisan yeah. yes yeah and actually um, someone who makes cheese it's called a cheesemaker <laughs> yeah a cheesemaker yeah yeah Just like it's makers, as simple as that cheesemakers yep. <laughs> yeah so yeah I was like I kind of got into like artisanal cheeses. Kind of recently, so I just went to the second. I got like brie, and then I got some gouda, and it was just, like so fun picking out the different types of cheeses and stuff like that. I was l- learning about like the Rockport blue cheese, and so it's like, oh yeah, yes, yeah, it yes, comes from a specific cave in France, and um, by like a version, yeah, like a type of like penicillin bacteria that's responsible for for creating that type of cheese, and it's, it's so cool. Like cheese has such a long history. Um, it's basically a way that people thought of to preserve milk, right? When they had mm-hmm. excess milk, so. 
All right, that's the end of this episode of the X Talks Food Podcast. If you like today's show, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks, everyone, and see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the X Talks Food Industry Podcast. If you enjoyed our discussions today, please share the episode with your friends and colleagues, and be sure to subscribe in order to be notified when a new episode is released. To join in on the discussion, you can find X-Talks on social media. Email podcast at xtalks.com or comment on the articles directly. Links are in the show description. Take a moment to join our community at xtalks.com to get access to everything we have to offer, including webinars, job listings, virtual meetings, articles, and more. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers sharing them. They should not be taken as professional advice and do not necessarily reflect the policy or position Honeycomb Worldwide. For further information, email us at podcast at xtalk.com. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next week.